Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Armor on the Air, the podcast where we discuss community health, the societal implications of microbiology, and the instances in which Dana's fever dreams turn out to be at the forefront of medical science. Dana here with my co-host. Oh, plot twist. It's not Caroline. She's spending time with family visiting from Denmark. So I'm here today with a member of our local armor chapter, Ezra. Ezra, can you introduce yourself real quick? Hi, everyone. I'm Ezra. I'm a second year student here at CU Boulder, undergraduate. Um, I'm majoring in biochemistry. And I've been a part of this armor chapter since, what, September 2020? basically since you got to campus you've never known cu boulder without armor yeah no it's been a very this was the only place that i talked to people at the height of the pandemic i had no friends (laughs) (laughs) i cannot confirm or deny this yeah you guys were great um (laughs) no here i am i know i've been listening to the podcast since i joined so it's yeah ezra might actually be our biggest fan yeah I, i do love it yeah respect respect did you have a good week ezra you know, it's been really busy. I have a physics mm-hmm. midterm tomorrow. No. Uh, so hopefully by the time this comes out and people are listening to it, I have done well. Yes. <laughs> That's my goal. So. Yes. We will pray for you in the audio sphere. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So we're going to talk about jellyfish today. I hope you're stoked. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but not just about jellyfish. We're also going to look at how scientists are using ways to use the mechanism of toxin delivery in jellyfish tentacles to deliver medicine. So to start off, I'm going to contextualize, well, we'll get there. I'm not going to start right away with this, but I just wanted to disclose that I'm going to share my experience of how I came up with this idea as I was learning about jellyfish in Hawaii. And then I did a bunch of Googling and found out that in fact, like this has been done before, just like a few years prior to my having the idea. But the reason I want to share this is because I think it's a helpful illustration of how science and research actually works like I think there's this pervasive idea that that science is something that that this you know brilliant Einstein of a person just like sits alone in a lab like reading papers and like mixing test tubes or something and then all of a sudden like we have you know discoveries happening right and oftentimes like the way that we speak about Alexander Fleming praise be upon him (laughs) (laughs) like I feel like contributes to that narrative And I'm here to tell you that that's not how science works. A lot of times, scientists are just inspired by the world around them. And sometimes the things that are inspiring are microscopic. And so that's ultimately like sort of how science sort of hones in your focus on these areas that a lot of people don't normally interact with. So you, dear listener, Ezra, whoever's listening to this out there, you're more than capable of being a scientist. All it takes is curiosity and excitement about the natural world. So Ezra, have you ever seen a jellyfish in the wild? You know, I've seen a dead one. Does that count? Aww. It was a little it counts. sad. It was it just counts. like... It counts. Was he big? Maybe like palm-sized. It kind of just okay. looked like an odd gelatinous... Yeah, it looks like someone dropped their jello, right? Yeah. It was It was kind of gross looking, but it was also kind of cool. I was like, oh, look. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a weird puddle of water. <laughs> I hope you didn't touch it. <laughs> no, I did not. Well, I tried. Okay. Uh, granted, I was like six. Um, oh, okay. Okay. So my memory may be a little foggy, but I tried to touch it and I was pulled back quickly by my parents. 
rapidly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I intercepted that. Um, where was that? Oh, Oregon, I think. Oh, I'm pretty cool, sure cool. I was visiting my grandparents. Cute. Cute. We love that. Okay, so jellyfish. Very sorry to inform everyone are not in fact fish. I Tragedy. know the name implies things, but they're not fish, they're invertebrates. No backbone, right? No bones. And their mouth is also their butt, which is also their legs. Wait, what? <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> so jellyfish use these tiny stinging cells that are all over their tentacles, and I'll tell you more about this later. Um, but they use these stinging cells to stun or paralyze their prey, and then they suck their prey into their little bell body through their mouth. And their mouth is this opening that sits at the center of all of the tentacles, right? At the base of that bell body. Yeah. The little Does that make sense? Yeah. Circle thing at the bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so this orifice in the middle sucks up the food and then they digest it in their body. And then they have to spit out the leftover debris, which is jellyfish poop. I hope they can't taste they can because that sounds really good so i didn't google that <laughs> <laughs> someone dm us and tell us if jellyfish can taste hayden my partner i'm looking at you if anyone knows it's my marine biologist <laughs> okay um so they spit out the leftover debris right so that's how they they pass their food once they've gotten all of the nutritional value out of it and then if they want to move somewhere, they just spit out water. So I guess legs or fins, but it's like also their mobility. That's so technique. cool. Yeah. Wow. I thought they moved by like wiggling their tentacles. No, because they have no nervous system. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That's so weird. Fascinating indeed, right? So they like to eat things like fish and shrimp and crab and sometimes little plants. What do you think is a predator of jellyfish, Ezra? Isn't that that thing with the turtles? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Turtles friggin' love the slimy, colorful jellyfish. It's like a buffet of little jelly snacks. Peak hors d'oeuvre for the floaty sea turtle. So they're, they're the main dietary source for leatherback sea turtles. If you're wondering what that turtle looks like, whatever image you have of a turtle in your head, just pretend that there's an entire constellation of stars on its back. That's a leatherback sea turtle. They're friggin' gorgeous. You should Google them if you have the time. This is might be the only instance on Armor on the Air where I tell you to Google something and it's and not, it's not horrible. a horrific medical... Yeah. <laughs> you have inspired me to Google things that I have strongly regretted. I'm glad I hold that position in your mind. <laughs> I'm so honored. Okay, um, so there's been this meme going around online, and I think it originated on on Im Imger, Imger, Imger. I have no idea. I, like, I say Imger. The Reddit's it's basically Reddit's Instagram kind of where all the memes get posted and then they get linked to Reddit. There's a meme going around right now that the reason why have you seen Finding Nemo? Yes. You know, crush the sea turtle, how he's like yeah, total stoner hey, surfer bro. <laughs> Hey, dude. Yeah. So there's this rumor going around that apparently the reason why Crush the sea turtle acted like that was because turtles eat jellyfish and the toxins in jellyfish make them high. Oh, yeah. I did. I think I saw that. Yeah, I think it made a, it made its way to the real Instagram and got reposted. That's probably there. where I saw it. Yeah, that's that's where I first saw it. This is not true. 
Oh, that's sad. Yeah, honestly, I'm a little disappointed too, but that does not undermine that Crush had an awesome personality. In fact, I think it makes him cooler. He didn't have to rely on a substance to be He's as cool unique. as he was. He's yeah. unique. It's not just his food. Not just his food. Nope. He, he's not, a, as far as I can tell, based on the evidence laid out in the movie, he has no addictions to substances that have hallucinogenic or cognitive effects. He's on point. He's just a rad surfer dude. Nice. But then that begs the question, like, why, how come jellyfish can sting fish, which, like, arguably, like, getting a toxin past the scales of a fish, which are kind of like tiny human nails, if you really think about it for too long. That's gross. I don't uh, like sorry. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why doesn't the jellyfish then sting the sea turtle when they're eating them that's a really good question are they immune and i can understand like sure maybe like oh their face like their skin's a lot tougher and they got that beak which is all true why doesn't it sting them in the throat i have no idea that's an right? incredible question i was wondering that too so i googled it for you thank so I have you an answer so indeed confirmed that turtles have like a really strong beak and really thick skin and then they've trained themselves to close their eyes when they go in for a nibble so that it doesn't zap their eyeballs that's so cute and they also have like much more maneuverability than the jellyfish so they can come at the jellyfish from above and generally avoid the tentacles but then when they swallow most turtles have these tiny spiny projections all the way down their throat that are called papillae and these are kind of similar in material to human nails or human hair, but it's like a lot thicker. And because of this, this protects their throat from jellyfish stings. And they can eat. You slurp up a jellyfish. Nature. Delicious. That's amazing. Nature. But I also just love that turtles eat with their eyes closed so that they don't get zapped. Like, can you imagine going in for like a bowl of spaghetti and you have to close your eyes every time you <laughs> so take So the a spaghetti bite? doesn't attack you. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't suffer like third degree burns on your eyeballs while eating. <laughs> okay, so a few years ago, I went to Hawaii with my brother and my dad. And the big, big warning that you get from all the locals in Hawaii is watch out for the Portuguese man of war jellyfish. That They're sounds everywhere. like an intimidating name. Doesn't it? They get kind of big, so they can be like maybe like a foot long, their little bell body. But the ones I saw were like itty tiny layers, or maybe like a few centimeters. Oh, They're cute. really small. Yeah, yeah. They looked like little, like, you know, when you get like mini pancakes. Yeah. It looked kind of like that. Were they colorful? Um, yeah, they were like blue and pink and purple. And oh, so pretty. Gorgeous. But so dangerous. I wouldn't say dangerous. They're not going to kill you, at least not the little guys that I saw. But they can leave you, like, a pretty bad sting. So... Not pleasant. Not all jellyfish can hurt humans. Or even sting humans. But those that can, will. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they're also pretty conspicuous. Like, you can identify them pretty well. Like, I'll see if I can, like, capture the image of a Portuguese man-of-war jellyfish for you. The standard, like, they're not quite shaped like a regular jellyfish. So the, think of, like, the Spongebob jellyfish, where it's literally just, like, a bell and little tentacles. Uh -huh. That's, like, standard simplified jellyfish. The Portuguese man of war has an extra air-filled bladder, like a crown, that sits on top of that body. 
cool. on the opposite side of the tentacles. Yeah, and this bladder is shaped almost exactly like a dumpling. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of amazing. So, right? So the part of the dumpling that would normally contain all of the filling is filled with air. And instead of dough, it's like this translucent gelatinous structure. And then the part of the dumpling that like is pinched, right? Like that curved pinched part of the dumpling acts like a little sail. So the bladder fills with air, the jellyfish sits on the very surface of the water, and then its little dumpling sail lets the wind carry it around. Wow. And then when it reproduces, all of the organisms like descend as they reproduce and they're like reproducing by budding the whole time and they're diversifying their genetic expression so that each of the cells in the organism, which I'm told is called a colony because they're not all genetically identical, but this is so far off in marine biology terrain for me that I'm afraid of saying something wrong. So I'm not going to comment until I've done further research. Maybe we can do a deep dive on the Portuguese man of war jellyfish sometime. Deep dive jellyfish. But right now we're just talking about their morphology. So when they reproduce, if I understand correctly, all of the cells are like reproducing by budding and they descend into the water. And we've never actually seen this process in the wild. Fun fact, this is just what we've observed in the lab. But so we descend. don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. We don't know for, this is what we, this is what they were comfortable with humans seeing. I mean, they can be private. <laughs> they can be private. It's fine. No, like boundaries. I respect that. So it reproduces underwater and then they create this bladder. So they diversify the cells that make up the bladder. And then they start absorbing oxygen from the water and producing a little bit of carbon dioxide themselves to fill the bladder and then they rise to the surface and then they hang out on the surface of the water being little jellyfish that's incredible it's a portable isn't it balloon. adorable they're super cute so in talking to locals and tour guides on this trip they told us to really avoid these little guys and i say little guys because i didn't see any that were that were that big uh, and one of my tour guides actually showed me a scar on his arm from a really recent sting. And it was really interesting because you could see like exactly where the tentacle stuck to his arm. There was like a perfect trail. So here's another horrifying thing that you can Google. Jellyfish stings, they leave perfect trails of where they encountered the skin. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I know it's not an electrical shock because then the whole area would be red. And I know that the tentacles aren't secre like secreting some kind of an oil, like a poison ivy type thing, because then the mark wouldn't leave such precise uh, lines because they drag and like, right, all of that. Yeah. So how do jellyfish actually sting? Is it a bunch of mini stings? It's a bunch of mini jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> they summon their army. So it's actually, um, it's actually a type of cell that exists in the tentacle of the jellyfish. And not just the jellyfish, but any cnidarian. And cnidarian is a weird word if you're gonna Google it. It's spelled with a C. I was gonna say, when I read that word, that was not how I imagined it being pronounced. <laughs> it's spelled like cnidarian, but I'm pretty sure it's just cnidarian. If not, please correct me by DMing us on Instagram and Twitter at CU underscore armor. Um, Cnidarians are one of the most simple multicellular sort of high organisms um, and high organism just meaning that they like collaborate with many cells to 
control the function of one overall organism. So we are also considered high-level organisms because like the there's nervous a bunch system? of cells. What's that? Is it like the nervous system? Yeah, it'll be things like we got nervous system. We have, like, all of our cells have differentiated to take on different roles that all contribute to one overall organism with systemic monitoring and systemic awareness, um, as opposed to something like bacteria, where even if you have a colony of bacteria, well, <laughs> this is starting to change now as we're learning more about, like, bacterial communication, but they're not responding systemically in most cases. Yeah. We, this is turning into a philosophical discussion that I'm more than happy to have with you in another episode about, like, at what, like, where are we drawing these kind of arbitrary lines because we're What's calling bacteria, yeah, yeah, like, we're calling bacteria these, like, simple single-celled organisms, but the more we learn about bacterial communication, the more that there's a lot of collaboration and interaction among bacteria that kind of starts to look a lot like a high-level organism, albeit a simple like one. Like the but cheese like, rind. You said like the cheese rind like biofilms in general where like okay fine like if you're gonna make your definition of a high level organism be that the same cells dna is differentiating expression to take on different roles biofilms friggin do that i love where's the line your biofilms episode is my favorite episode i think about I'm it every so time i eat cheese honored. and i tell my what? family every time i eat cheese this is important information that everyone needs to be aware of. It's incredible. It's so crazy. <laughs> okay, so we've talked enough about this crazy word, Nidarian. What do you think Nidarian means? Oh, I have no idea. Something to do with Nidair? <laughs> Actually, I mean, you're not wrong, but then what does Nidare mean? Or Nido anything? Jellyfish? It literally means, like, stingy boy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, Nidarian means stinging creature, so anytime I say Nido anything, it's referring to the stingy boys. Good to know. So Nidarians are not just jellyfish, they also encompass organisms like anemones, oh. which sting in the exact same way. They have the same type of cells in both of them. This is what binds them together on the evolutionary branch, essentially. I had no idea those were related. Yeah, That's right? So cool. And and they just have different body shapes and one of them sits upside down relative to the other. So then do you know, because in Finding Nemo, because that's where the clownfish live, right? Mm-hmm. Why then can't they do that with the jellyfish? So they can, technically. The problem is, though, that the jellyfish that they encounter in the movie are a lot more powerful than the uh, anemone that Marlin lives in. So okay. he, if you remember when he's like yelling at Dory, he's like, Dory, you need to be careful. I can handle these things. They're not going to hurt me as much, but you can't. And that's why he's able to sort of like dive in through the tentacles, grab Dory's limp, lifeless <laughs> body, drag it back out. But it still hurts him. It just isn't as debilitating it isn't as, as it was for Dory. Yeah. And we're Dory and this is because in this situation. Poor Dory. Yeah, we're Dory. <laughs> um, the reason why, I did also Google this though, why clownfish don't get stung by anemones and why they're sort of resistant to jellyfish stings is because they actually produce an, an oily gel coating on the surface of their scales that intercepts the, the jellyfish's deployment of toxin. That's so cool. Right? And so I know that one of the other avenues of using this entire area of research regarding jellyfish stings and resistance to jellyfish stings there's a whole area of research of like can we create kind of like a sunscreen like lotion that makes you that makes you resistant to, to the jellyfish mm -hmm. and it's so drawing a lot smart. of inspiration yeah from from clownfish skin yep 
that would be really useful if you were in a place you, with yeah. a jellyfish. Yeah, no, I actually am pretty sure I did get stung by a jellyfish when I went to Hawaii, and it was, like, on our first day there, so I had no idea. I'm like, I don't know, like, I think a shell scratched me or something. It was just such a small little abrasion that it just felt like this awful burning, and it, of course, of course it was on my butt, because I'm a clueless <laughs> tourist. So where else would it be? It wouldn't be in, like, a, a spot that isn't, you know, humiliating. Um, it stung me on the butt, and it looked a little red, so I'm like, oh, I just got, like, scraped by a seashell or something no big deal it really wasn't debilitating it was like a surface graze contact with probably a very small portuguese man of war but yeah i i felt it could definitely could have used some uh anti-jellyfish jelly yeah but would you have put it on your butt no yeah that's That's... my achilles i have the achilles butt (laughs) 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 okay So let's talk about cnidarians. I wanted to mention this one really cool fact about cnidarians as an organism that isn't really terribly common in the animal kingdom. Animals always have to grow and develop in these really precise ways, right? So if you look at how humans grow, we have a bunch of really important signaling genes that are like, deploy the arms sequence, grow the legs here, eliminate the tail, like things like that, that make us have our shape, right? And every animal has this. So we actually research a lot on flies to learn about how they grow limbs and how we grow limbs. There's actually a lot of genetic overlap. They're called Hox genes. And these genes are important for like, grow a set of arms here, now grow another one over here. And scientists have mutated these genetic signals such that you have flies that have no arms or like, 10 arms or arms growing out of their eyeballs or something like that. So Hawks genes are like really uh, impressionable, I guess. Like you'll have a totally different figure if you uh, if you mess around with these Hawks genes. Now, the reason why I bring up this, this evolution and development aspect of this is because Nidarians are unique in that they are radially symmetrical, kind of like an umbrella or a bicycle tire. So instead of growing out of like a tube, the way we grow, they kind of grow like out, like a mandala or something. Which, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, not relevant to too, too much to the episode, but I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool. That is so super I thought, cool. I, I thought you, could all, you could all have that jellyfish and anemone fact in your back pocket. If you're ever in a situation where someone's like, give me a random trivia fact, anything. Um, you can whip out the radial symmetry of Nidarians and wow your friends and amaze your teachers. And ironically, um, <laughs> I was just talking to somebody else about the Hawks genes and I got a book recommendation. So I thought maybe I'd share that with you. What's the book? It's called Your Inner Fish. And I was oh! told, isn't that so cute? That's and I was so told cute. that it's basically talking all about the Hawks genes and like how they work in, in a pretty accessible way. That's amazing. I am definitely going to pursue that book. Not just for the name, but the content sounds right up my alley. Doesn't that sound so cute? I was so excited. I love that. (laughs) Okay. So the reason why cnidarians are called cnidarians is because they have a special type of stinging cell that is unique to them. And this cell is called a cnidocyte. So you can imagine stinging cell, stingy boy. Nidocyte. The names make sense, right? Nidocyte. That's such a fun word to say. It's like snickerdoodle. You just want to say it over and over again. Nidocyte. Nidocyte. <laughs> so jellyfish have these stingy cells 
Um, and within these nidocyte stingy cells, there's a cell structure called a nematocyst. Now, the structure of this nematocyst is like a tiny little sac, like a little bladder inside of the cell. Because it's a and cyst. within the cell, <laughs> nematocyst. That there you sense. go. <laughs> <laughs> and inside that little sac is this really, really tightly coiled thread. And when it's triggered, the coiled thread shoots out and straightens super, super fast. And when it's straightened out, it looks like a harpoon with a bunch of little barbs. That's terrifying. It. Terrifying. But it's so tiny, like you can't, you can't see it, so it'll be fine. Um, and then within that same sac, at sort of the base of that harpoon, is a little tiny sac of toxins. And so the jellyfish will deploy these nematocyte harpoons into whatever it contacts that it wants to kill. And then the thing gets poked by the harpoons and then that tiny sack of toxins is released inside the wow. body, right? Wherever it, yeah. So I was right that the jellyfish stinger is just a bunch of really tiny stingers. Yes, and, and that, Wow. yes. <laughs> yes, actually, in fact, it's, it's just a bunch of tiny guys. And that's how it manages to be so precise because it is billions and billions of microscopic injections, of microscopic needles that poke into the skin. So the irritation follows exactly the path of, of injection. Wow. So Ezra, another question for you. Yes. What do you think triggers the nidocyte, the stingy cell, to deploy its mini harpoon? That's a really good question. If you hadn't said at the beginning of this that they didn't have a nervous system, I would have said a nervous system. Yeah, it's not a nervous system. So it's actually the cells making the decision on their own. But what gives those cells the information? Do they have some sort of protein or something that they stop sending to each other? Kind of. So they actually have proteins that sit on the surface of the cell which is right on the outside of that tentacle. And these are proteins that are constantly scanning the environment for chemical signals. So they have this open binding site. And as soon as something binds that binding, binding site, that triggers the big like shift in calcium to, what it actually does is it opens up a bunch of channels in the membrane of that specific cell. And when it opens up those channels, a bunch of water rushes in all at once. And it increases the pressure of the nematocyst by like 150 times ambient atmospheric pressure. So imagine like pressure just instantly increasing by 150 times what you're experiencing right now. That sounds insane, very unpleasant. Insane pressure gradient. It is absolutely ridiculous that a cell can like sustain this kind of pressure. And it doesn't like burst? No, it happens extraordinarily quickly and the energy is then like released and then the water like flows back out very rapidly. So it's not like it has to sit there and hold this pressure. Um, but this very specific bladder, right, that holds the harpoon, that is where the pressure increases. So that membrane of that particular cell compartment is a lot tougher. So if you look at the the, like just to give an analogy, if you look at our human organs, the membranes around a lot of our organs are really like soft. Like you could pull them apart in most cases by hand. Your bladder is really freaking tough. 
it's really, really tough because it knows it has to sustain a higher pressure. And so similarly, this cell compartment in the jellyfish has evolved to be extraordinarily tough and to withstand that 150 times pressure increase. And then it releases that all by ejecting the harpoon. Do you want to take a guess as to how fast this biological event takes place? It's one of the fastest events in, in biology ever. The fastest. One of the fastest. Um, like, I'm assuming not speed of light fastest. No, not speed of light. <laughs> Tragically, no. That would be crazy. That would be, like there's know. like a sonic boom every time you get stung by a jellyfish. That would be terrifying. That would be insane. Um, I don't know, like a nanosecond? It's three milliseconds. Oh. Yeah, so it's not chemical reaction fast, but That's it is true. biologically extraordinarily fast. Because like considering all the things your body does, that is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm curious... Producer Colleen, can you Google really quickly how fast a neural impulse is in a human for comparison? Because then we could know, like, how much hotter is the jellyfish really? Yeah, because, like, I guess ours, like, like if you're imagining touching a jellyfish, like, I'm assuming theirs is going to go faster than you can pull away. But, like, would you oh, that's feel true. it before? That's true. That's a good point. So, I'm, I mean, I'm... Do anything. I'm pretty confident it's faster 70 okay. 120 meters per second we'd have to do some conversions to get this in the order of milliseconds say that it's from like the brain to your fingertip that's probably like what a meter so actually that would be one over 70 to one over 120 seconds right Hold on, I got my calculator out here. One divided wow. by 70. We're doing some crazy math. We're doing some crazy math. Okay, so we are at 15 milliseconds. 15. Just to get a signal from our brain to the tips of our fingers. And not even back. Not even back, right? Wow. So that's... I hope that contextualizes it a little bit for you. They're five times faster uh, than a conservative estimate for a human neural impulse. Wow. So the thing that actually triggers the deployment of this tiny harpoon, we don't totally know, but we know that it's a combination of signals that all have to line up at once. And this is important because the jellyfish doesn't want to sting itself. Oh yeah, that would be an issue. Yeah, and it doesn't want to be stinging randomly in the water, right? So if it were relying just on pH, which we know is a component of this, then there might be situations in which there's a sudden like shift in the pH and maybe that ends up triggering maybe that ends up triggering what that actual deployment looks like and they start just like releasing toxins into the water non-specifically. You don't want to do that if you're an organism surviving in the water. It takes energy to produce those toxins and keep those cells at the ready. So you don't want to just be wasting those. So it's something like the pH, the specific oils that are present on the, their specific praise scales, right? And so that's why some jellyfish can hurt us and some can't. Like there's some jellyfish in which our oil composition overlaps with their praise oil composition uh, in some cases in which they're, they're mutually exclusive and they wouldn't sting us in those cases. Yeah. So all of this information, while detrimental to the clueless tourist, is very appealing for drug delivery. 
Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you why. Yeah, that's all of this, like, 30 minutes of setup for me to just say, like, you could make it make a drug out of this. And this is what you figured out, right? This is what I figured out, right. So as I was talking to the the locals in Hawaii and I saw that, like, there's something really unique about this delivery mechanism that's not going that's not, it, it's very precise. It's very localized. It's precise. It's rapid, which are all things that are good for drug delivery. And I was thinking about this, like from the context of like, I have a friend who has a really severe peanut allergy and she has to stab herself with this ridiculous needle if she ever encounters a peanut. Right. Um, and so I thought like, maybe there's an alternative way that we can deliver this kind of medication uh, just to her throat that would bring down swelling just in her throat so that she don't have to bring her whole body up to that epinephrine dose level in order for her to actually you know start recovering from the response to the peanut allergy until she can be treated at the hospital because what that ha what happens with that is that when you bring the epinephrine dose up throughout the body you get like massive heart palpitations it's literally like a huge dose of adrenaline because adrenaline constricts your blood vessels so that your body is more efficient at delivering blood flow, delivering oxygen, so you can respond with a fight or flight. Whatever. And then sometimes Whatever. Don't you have to use like two EpiPens. Like you sometimes, have to have a yeah. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. So EpiPens are almost always sold in packs of two. Um, and I like, you know, having my friend with this debilitating peanut allergy for her whole life. Um, I had to learn how to use an EpiPen because I was around her so often, like as much as her family, like. If anyone could be relied upon, uh, like, to be statistically likely to be around her, it was me. So I got to learn how to stab a grapefruit with an EpiPen. That was fun. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you could, in theory, purify these nematocytes from jellyfish or anemone tentacles and then instead of loading them with the toxin, you could instead load that same sac with your drug of choice. So this could be even something like a antibiotic, like a topical antibiotic that you want to be delivered only locally. So you don't have to deal with like the side effects of ingesting something and having it go through your digestive system and affect all the bacteria in your digestive system. So this will bring you to therapeutic dose in the area that you need it. This could also be really helpful for people who need epinephrine right away or people who need, um, maybe there's like some kind of a, drug that can help buy time if you're exposed to anthrax spores right Ooh, so like yeah. preventing that from settling into your lungs maybe there's a way that we can intercept that right away so the other thing about this delivery mechanism is that if you notice it's very it's based upon osmosis so that means that you just have to flush it with water and that will actually like because activate it doesn't the do mechanism mm-hmm which means it's really easy to store. So you could store it in like a gel, for example, which has a lot like wider temperature uh, stability range. And then like water is an accessible resource in most cases. You could pour water from a water bottle on top of this. And it, it could doesn't be have a patch. to be super it could pure be a gel. either, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So that makes it really, really easy to activate. And we already actually have uh, sort of experimental drug delivery patches that are kind of like a sticker. And the sticker is loaded, like the body of the sticker is loaded with the drug of choice. And then you put it on top and what you don't see is that there's microscopic, they're called micro needles. They're these 3D printed needles 
that are specifically designed to penetrate just beneath the skin. And so you can wear this patch and, mo and it doesn't hurt, right? It, it, the only reason jellyfish stings hurt is because of there's the a toxin. Yeah, yeah, right? There's, there's this toxin in, in the, yeah, that, that's being delivered and ultimately that's what causes the irritation, the swelling, the pain, the, the redness, the heat, all of that. Um, but if you don't have an irritant in it, then it's not going to hurt. And I think this microneedle patch is a really good example of how like when things penetrate like this close to the surface of the skin, we don't even feel them. You get cuts like this all the time and you have no idea that it's happening because it's not reaching any of your vasculature. It's not actually making you bleed and it's not hitting any of your nerves beneath your skin either, right? Most people can't tell the difference between a microneedle patch and just like a piece of tape on their wow. hand. Wow. Yeah. So it's not going to hurt, right? It's painless delivery. And because it sort of sidesteps a lot of the side effects that you normally get from having to process a drug through your digestive system, we expect that this would increase patient compliance with taking a drug. We can deliver it locally, right? So if you have an infection on your arm, then we could deliver antibiotics just to that location without having to get your entire body systemically up to therapeutic concentration. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, right? Right? So one of the main reasons why microneedles have only just recently started becoming a thing in like the last 10 to 15 years is because like on the one hand, it's really hard to make needles that small. On the other hand, human skin is coated with hydrophobic oils and most of our drugs are hydrophobic. So if it's not found naturally in the body, like a steroid or a hormone, topical applications don't really exist. So you don't really have a topical like heart cholesterol medication, <laughs> right? Like that's not really a thing because the, the hydrophobicity, meaning like fear of water, avoidance of water, kind of like oily nature, it's going to avoid penetrating anything that is kind of more watery. So it's not going to want to get into the skin. It's not going to want to make it past the oil that's already coating the skin to interact with more watery things. Hydrophobic likes to hang out with hydrophobic. They get together and they talk about how much they hate water and what a dumb mean bitch she is. That's what they do. They try to avoid water at all costs. So they're not going to make it past the skin with a topical like lotion or anything. So this can actually help us bypass that because jellyfish already figured out how to make it past that oily layer with their little harpoon system. That's incredible. That seems yeah. to fix all the issues. It seems, yeah, I don't know why this isn't more widespread. So as you can imagine... I got really, really excited about this whole thing when I started piecing this together in my head on the beach, on Googling things on my phone, because that's what you do <laughs> when you're involved in science. You sit on the beach and you Google research ideas. Um, but I found out it had been done before. So that was like kind of a relief and also kind of like, darn, I could have gotten so much money for this. <laughs> I mean, it's but, probably progressed further. Yes, it has. It has. So there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. I wanted to highlight an Israeli company called Nanosite, and they've been doing a lot of the, the big groundwork and foundational research and turning this uh, like nematocyst into a drug delivery system. So they came up with a technique for isolate, isolating nematocytes from anemones, stabilizing them in a gel, and activating them with water. So they got all three key steps set up. And so this is really awesome because they figured out purification, they figured out storage, 
and they figured out the drug delivery piece. So we're like actually really close to like jellyfish drug delivery. That's incredible. Which I think is so cool. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So basically this started like this idea started taking off about five years prior to me coming up with the idea. So like oh, maybe around 2008. earlier. I should have taken that. I should have go to Hawaii more and just write down all my ideas. Um, but around like tw- 2008 to 2011, this was the golden age of the jellyfish drug lords. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Inspiring. Um, and it's so, so cool to look at nature to get more ideas in medicine because medicine is a science that interfaces with nature, with the body, right? With biology. And nature and does that so well. Nature does it so, right. And like jellyfish have been around for at least 500 million years. Like they're doing something right. We should take a cue from how jellyfish have, have solved this problem of delivering one thing into another organism. And actually like it's kind of similar to how bacteria deliver toxins to one another as well. It's kind I of similar. I was just thinking that. Yeah, the type 3 secretion system. So, like, nature's got it figured out. Like, we... We just need to figure knows, it out, yeah. too. <laughs> we just need to observe. Like, they'll give us... They're literally helping us cheat. Like, Chegg for medical research is just nature. nature. It's just jellyfish. <laughs> jellyfish and bacteria. Okay. I'm getting riled up, so we should probably wrap this up. Do you have anything, anything that you want to close out with, Ezra, for this episode? Nature is incredible. Nature's rad. And Go this makes me want a jellyfish. Your, yes. Hug your local marine biologist. Um, smooch a microbiologist. Um, support your local ecologists. Spend time in nature. Spend time in nature, appreciate, learn something new, solve world hunger by looking at nature, please. Be open to new ideas. and just Be open to new ideas. See what random ideas strike you on the beach. Yes, and then make podcasts about them once you find out that you had an idea someone already had. Every time I tell people that I had this idea before, like, looking and knowing that it existed, I feel, I don't know if you've seen that episode of The Office where... Michael Scott is like, I thought of a unicorn before I ever saw one. I came up with that. And I'm like, I feel like such a d- dope who's just like <laughs> looking for credibility. I promise. <laughs> and I, I have this. no proof. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like so ridiculous. But it's still exciting. It was really validating for me as a researcher. This was basically like the pivotal moment for me when I decided I wanted to go into research and particularly medical research. So I can split my life up into like before and after jellyfish. Wow, jellyfish jellyfish yeah they're kind of um they're kind of like a life-changing spirit animal for me and maybe this podcast will do that too i hope i hope this inspires someone (laughs) all right ezra thank you for hanging out with me today thanks for having me on you were being on the other end yeah right We put out podcasts every other week to teach you all about the societal implications of microbiology and health. Keep up with us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at CU underscore armor. We also meet every Tuesday at four Mountain Standard Time to do this with no filter. You are welcome to join us. You can email us at armor at colorado.edu or DM us on Twitter or Instagram and we'll share that Zoom link with you. And then you can also meet Ezra. That's where Ezra hangs out with us. You get to meet the whole Armor gang. If your community has unique needs, we encourage you to start your own chapter of Armor. To learn more, visit our website at arclabs.org forward slash armor. 
Thanks for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Jellyfish say bye. <laughs> <laughs>